Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, glad to have you here today, and if you're online as well. I want to also thank Randy. Uh, it's a joy that we've served together many of these years, and I love your creativity this morning. Thank you for using God's gift to help us engage in this wonderful text this morning. So I'm grateful for you, Randy. Just want you to know that. When our children were young, uh, I pursued, at that time, further graduate education in Chicago. And that meant a lot of things for our family. It meant a lot of things for me these several years that I was doing that back and forth. It was a good chunk of time. Uh, and it was all beginning to wear sort of thin on us. Uh, and I would pack my bags, you know, and head to the airport. And before heading out the door, uh, our two children, Schaefer and Sarah, would often ask me with this tone of, well, let's just say unenthusiastic resignation. Dad, how long are you going to be gone? And usually, uh, I would simply say, not long, but I'll miss you, I love you, and I scooted out the door to watch them wave with their little hands on the window pane as I left. There's something about having a loved one leave us, right, that is indescribable in its deep emotional realities. It's a draining thing. And separation floods our hearts with a myriad of emotions, but it also brings to us a pressing question at the forefront of our minds. And that question for all of us is, how long will they be gone? Because more than anything at that moment, we want to know, when are you going to return? In the first century, a man named John, along with 11 others of Jesus' closest earthly friends, are having this incredible dinner with Jesus. And in this intimate and joyful setting, Jesus makes this surprising and stunning announcement. Basically, he says, guys, I'm leaving. And there's this long pause. But I'll be back. There is a sense of shock, clearly. There's a sense of fear and anxiety that fills this once tranquil air. And speaking to the separation and anxiety, hanging like a fog in that room that they're all feeling... Jesus has this extended conversation with his disciples, preparing them for what lies ahead. Jesus' departing words are captured for us in one seamless conversation in John chapter 13 through 17. Last week we explored the first part of chapter 16, where the first underlying question emerges, why, Jesus, are you leaving? Why would Jesus leave us? And he tells his followers that it is actually to their advantage that he leaves. He's going to send the Holy Spirit who will guide them and help them. In other words, Jesus wants his disciples to know that even though he's going, they will never be left alone. So Jesus' conversation now continues in chapter 16. And Jesus next addresses another burning question. Burning in his disciples' anxious, fearful hearts. How long, Jesus, will you be gone? How long? Now, what's fascinating in this story is that Jesus never answers their question. Hmm. He doesn't say when he will return. But Jesus does focus on what following him in his absence will mean. That following Jesus... Again, will mean many things, but at the heart, it's going to mean waiting. And isn't it true for all of us across time, one of the most difficult things to do is to wait. It's the hardest four-letter word in English, I think, is W-A-I-T. 
I mean, I've said before on other occasions, I hate to wait. I hate to wait at red lights. Don't get near me when I'm at a red light. Just want you to know. The TSA security line, even when you have flyby security, it's too long for me. The slowest internet browser I seem to always have. And for some of us who have been around Kansas City while, we have all endured a lot of waiting, right? Year after year for the Royals to win the Super Bowl. And they finally, or not Super Bowl. <laughs> I'm taking the Chiefs, sorry. <clears throat> they finally won the World Series, right? And then the Chiefs, we waited for how many years before I even got here? And now it's Super Bowl time again, right? <clears throat> but waiting, my point, is simply really hard at every level. And as difficult as waiting is, if you choose to follow Jesus, if that is your choice, it's going to mean waiting. So what will waiting mean for us, for you and me? So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the Gospel of John. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Verse, or chapter 16. And our text this morning, Jesus tells us waiting is going to mean two things. It's how his conversation is unpacked. First, our waiting will be hard. And second, our waiting will actually be worth it. So look at me first at the theme of our waiting will be hard. Look at verses 16 through 19. Now listen again. Kelly read it beautifully. Listen again to the repetition, okay? A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while... You will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this he says to us a little while? And you will not see me. And then again, a little while, you will see me and because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Jesus knew they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while? And you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Now, I don't know how much of the New Testament you've read or John's style, but you have to have a sense here that John, as a first-hand witness in this tense upper room moment, has injected in his inspired text a bit of humorous literary winking. You almost can chuckle when you read this text. It's a crazy conversation. Notice, again, John's unusual staccato repetition here. Seven times in just four verses, John employs one Greek word that is translated in English in a phrase, a little while. Now, that word is in Greek, micron. You might get the idea that we get our English word micron from this, and you know it's not very big a micron, right? So it's a little, little, little while. That's the idea. Now, clearly, there is a thick cloud of confusion going on here, and you feel it when you hear it read, right? I mean, the disciples, which don't usually admit they are clueless, actually admitted this text. You should laugh. Like, Jesus, come on, we have no idea what you're talking about. This is really unusual for them. I want you to know that. So listening in on this conversation, you get the sense that the disciples are trying to find traction in midair, and they can't find it. Now, I love how Jesus is brilliant in every dimension of reality, but he's brilliant in reading the room here, and John wants us to see that. Jesus' disciples are mentally and emotionally locked in on this little word, micron, micron, a little while. 
So, like, what on earth does Jesus mean by a little while? It seems so vague and unsatisfying. They want more specificity. I've had people tell me that when they ask me a question, I don't really answer it, right? We want more traction, Tom. Like, give me an answer. That's where they are. And yet Jesus is saying very much with this very tiny word. And so we need to press into this. First, he is addressing the immediacy of the moment. In other words, Jesus is preparing them for a three-day wait between his death on the cross and his glorious bodily resurrection. But there is a whole lot more impregnated in this word. As Jesus' conversation continues, he begins to give a midrashic or a commentary on this idea of a little while. Not only for his disciples, but for all who would follow him in the future centuries and now millennia. You'll notice if you have your Bible open, in verse 23 and verse 25, the language gives us a suggestion that Paul or Jesus is talking about something more. Notice that day and the coming hour. This language tells us that Jesus is referring to a day still yet future when he will return and close the chapter of human history, bringing judgment and restoration Literally, making all things new, which Jesus explicitly states in the last book of the Bible in Revelation 21. Now, while you and I experience a, right, a long time of waiting, is really a little while. Hmm. From Jesus' eternal perspective, a little while is like a blink of an eye. And it, when it comes to our construct of time, stay with me. The eternal triune God is outside of time. And he is never bound by it, although he has stepped into it for a time. This is why the apostle Peter, who was in that upper room and heard all the little whiles, right, will say to the first century followers of Jesus who are facing really hard suffering and are waiting, he will say this, 2 Peter 3.8, do not overlook this one fact or truth, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. Even a thousand years from God's perspective is just a little while. Now, let's remember that in original creation, we as God's image bearers, while we were created in a moment in time, were always created for more than time. But let's sink in just a moment. The scriptures tell us that we have eternity in our hearts. So it's not surprising then that all of us, no matter what age we are, we wrestle, not only waiting but with the construct of time itself. In other words, how we bodily experience our time limitations. It's seemingly at times excruciating slowness. And then at times it's zippity by fastness. Can I say that? Just like that. And it's wonder-provoking mysteries. C.S. Lewis thought so much about this in brilliant ways, and in his reflection on the Psalms, he says it this way. One of the best quotes, I think, of Lewis. For we are so little reconciled to time that we are even astonished at it. 
How he's grown, we exclaim. How time flies as though the universal form of our experience were again and again a mere novelty. It is as strange as if a fish were repeatedly surprised at the very wetness of water. And Lewis goes on to say, and that would be strange indeed, unless, unless, of course, the fish were destined to become one day a land animal. See, the God outside of time, not limited by time, created us for more than time. Our friend Dallas Willard, who's now with the Lord, brilliant philosopher and friend of Christ's community, rightly reminded us many times, and the world, we are never ceasing spiritual beings with a grand destiny in God's universe. That's who we are. Our waiting now must be seen in light of that glorious destiny, viewed through a hopeful and clarifying lens of a timeless and eternal horizon. But in our present time, in our daily lives, where we live, work, and play, it is really true, isn't it? Waiting is really, really hard. But Jesus is preparing us with this truth. Our wait will be longer than we ever anticipated. Management guru Jim Collins uh, is just one of the finest organizational theorists. And in his best-selling book, it was a massive-selling book many years ago, Good to Great, tells the story of Admiral Jim Stockdale. Uh, Stockdale was a Vietnam War prisoner in what they called the Hanoi Hilton. I'm sure it wasn't the Hilton, actually. And after he returned home in the United States, Admiral Stockdale was asked, what was the difference between the POWs who survived and those who didn't? And he said, that's easy. The POWs who were convinced each year that they would be home by this Christmas never made it. But he said, the POWs who believed that they were going to get home eventually, but realized it may not be this Christmas, it may be many Christmases, a long wait, all made it home. Wow. In other words, the POWs who made it were hopeful realists. Not idealists. They prepared themselves for a long, long wait that would be harder than they ever imagined and longer than they ever anticipated. This is exactly what Jesus is doing here to his disciples. As Jesus prepares his disciples for the difficult and long road ahead of discipleship, Jesus turns the conversation next to this. Look at verses 20 through 21. Truly, truly, so this is a sense of emphasis by Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. Yeah, or it's gonna be hard. But the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. What I love about this text is that Jesus doesn't gloss over the hardness of following him in a broken world as sinful creatures. He shoots it straight. And he shares this intense metaphor to bring this truth home. Now, you probably have guessed, like, Tom, you don't know what you're talking about here, right? I don't, I've never given birth, but I've been vicariously dying next to my wife who did, okay? I mean, right? They call it labor for a reason. If you've given birth to a child, you know incredibly what Jesus is saying here. The language here, though, is this deep pain, this long labor, but this incredible joy. When we held Schaefer and Sarah in our hands after that long labor, I said to myself, I'll never treat Liz the same again. 
She's my hero. But we held him on our hands just with the greatest joy imaginable. Out of the body experience like nothing we've ever had, right? To hold that precious child. Now, this is the picture Jesus paints for us. Those who faithfully wait for him in the midst of pain, sorrow, disappointment, suffering, persecution, or whatever. That our sorrow will be eclipsed by joy. The apostle Paul picked this up. He knew this well. And he describes it even in a much greater way in Romans chapter 8, verse 22. He says, the same metaphor of birth. He says, there's all of broken creation waiting for its release from bondage. He says, for we know that all creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And Paul's hope in the gospel is what? That groaning is very real, but one day it'll be transformed to glory. So God is not only outside of time, friends, he is sovereignly directing the movement of time, bound history to an ultimate end. This is what the Bible speaks all the way through the text of Scripture. The Bible speaks and anticipates a grand finale, often referred to as the day of the Lord in the Old Testament, a time of anticipation where both judgment of evil and restoration will reach this incredible crescendo. When God closes the curtain of time-bound history, we do not know. No one knows. But we know from Jesus' words, our waiting will be more difficult than we imagine and longer than we expect. But the good news is we can be confident waiting will be worth it. That's where Jesus goes. Notice how the rest of this chapter builds. Jesus continues his conversation and he strikes a really hopeful tone. When you read it, and I encourage you to read it more carefully, it's like a refreshing rain. Themes of joy and peace emerge here. Let me highlight just a little bit. In verses 22 through 24, Jesus highlights the great relational joy his apprentices will experience in their deepening intimacy with God as they wait. And in verse 24, Jesus calls this overflowing joy, a joy they cannot fully fathom now. And in verses 25 through 28, Jesus assures them that they will experience the Father's love in the intimacy of prayer as they wait. Their waiting will be hard, but it will be worth it now and forever. They will not only have great joy in their current journey of following Jesus, they will experience more peace in the midst of difficulty, disappointment, heartache than they can ever fully comprehend. Look at how Jesus finishes his conversation with his disciples. It begins in fear and anxiety, this long conversation. And it ends with the most amazing hope-filled crescendo. Look at verses 33, or verse 33. Jesus said, I have said these things. That's the whole conversation here. 13 through 16. To you that in me you may have peace or shalom. In the world you will have trouble or tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Yes, the journey is going to be hard. But Jesus promises that he will give his disciples supernatural peace and power in the midst of it. The Apostle Paul, who understood the difficulty of waiting, describes the peace he experienced facing the greatest hardships. And he describes it beautifully to the church at Philippi. I want to give this to you because it's so powerful. He says, you will have the peace that passes understanding that what? Guard your mind and your heart in Christ Jesus. Jesus ends here in verse 33 
And if I may just sort of translate this just a little bit. Let me paraphrase it. I think he says, hey guys, don't forget it. I have overcome the world. Now the word overcome is really important in the original language because it's the picture of a decisive, overwhelming victory over a foe. And what Jesus is really saying, guys, in the end, I win. And you will win too. It's a ticker tape parade coming. So the question for us as followers of Jesus is how do we wait well? How do we do this? We're still waiting. We live in the time between Jesus' first and second coming. First coming as a sacrificial lamb, the second coming as the conquering king. We don't know when, but we can say in time that it's a lot closer than it was 2,000 years ago. So as Jesus' faithful apprentices in the 21st century, serving him wherever he has called us in our Monday worlds, how do we wait well? Let me give you two suggestions that I think are important as you think about your life of honoring Christ and following him tomorrow. First, this text focuses on we wait for Jesus. Notice, for Jesus. Each day, we wake up, we take a hopeful expectancy that we are one day closer to Jesus' return. Bless you. With constant expectancy and blessed hope, those who follow Jesus learn to wait. My wife Liz had this wonderful plaque she had many years ago. Some Christian artist uh, created this beautiful plaque and actually created a lot of humor for us. Um, but it simply said, perhaps today, you know, especially humorous when she had it in the bathroom for a while, but I'll let you think about that. <laughs> but it was a reminder of expectancy, right? When we see that plaque, like it could be today. And I want to say, Followers of Jesus, did you like that? Followers of Jesus, sorry, maybe that was inappropriate. No emails, please. Let, let your imagination go, I don't know. But what, what is really amazing is that followers of Jesus from the first century all had this sense, perhaps today, perhaps today, perhaps today. We are part of a national denomination that's a wonderful group of about 2,000 plus churches and we have that national accountability, but also a common doctrinal statement. One of the good pieces of our doctrine is our hopeful expectancy of Jesus' return. I want to share that with you this morning. We believe in the personal, bodily, and glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of Christ at a time known only to God demands constant expectancy, and as our blessed hope motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. See, these are not just beliefs we hold dear, and we do. They motivate us who are followers of Jesus to pursue a life of intimacy with Jesus and faithful stewardship of all our life, our time, talent, and treasure. And all of us are called to live with a posture of constant expectancy, hopeful living, and faithful service. This is where Jesus has us this morning. And when Jesus returns, our lives of faithfulness or unfaithfulness will be on display before him. So if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, let me humbly ask you, are you ready for that day? I don't know when it's coming, but one day Jesus will return. None of us know the day, but we know it's closer than it's ever been. And if you're thinking, oh, I'm just going to trust Jesus some other day, 
I just want to lovingly remind you, don't put off trusting him as your personal Lord and Savior. Not one of us is guaranteed life the rest of the day or tomorrow. Nor do we know when Jesus will close the curtain of history and time will be up for us in the world. So wherever you are in your relationship with Christ, if you've not embraced him, may you, in your seat this morning, with a prayer of repentance and trust, embrace him. Jesus welcomes you with his nail-scarred hands. He died for you. There's nothing you could ever do that would keep his love from you. Will you embrace him if you're not? And if you're a follower of Jesus, are you living each day with hopeful expectancy of his return? We wait for Jesus, but not just wait for Jesus. We wait on Jesus. Waiting has not only a hopeful expectancy of the future, friends, but also a confident trust in your Monday world, in your present today. How do we find hope and joy and peace in the present? How do we wait on Jesus, not just for him? When we go home today, when you and I struggle with doubt or fear, when we grapple with a persistent sin in our life, when we face daunting challenges, when we deal with difficult people in our workplace, when we are confronted with a big decision, how do we wait on Jesus in our Monday worlds? Serving him in our jobs, in our volunteering, in our post-paycheck worlds, if you're retired, at school or in our neighborhoods. Remember, as apprentice of Jesus, waiting is never a waste of time. It is a God-given opportunity, a gift of his sovereign grace. Waiting is one of those unchosen spiritual disciplines that God brings into your life to form deeper intimacy with him. It's never a waste. So how do we begin to wait on Jesus? Let me suggest just a few thoughts. Waiting on Jesus first means we remember God's promises in the Bible. That means we memorize them and meditate on them. I want to suggest a verse that is a constant companion to me. In my Monday world, it's Isaiah 40, 31. It's a promise I bring to mind often. Isaiah says, those who wait on the Lord will gain new strength. They will rise up with wings of eagles. They will walk and not be weary. Or they'll run and not be weary, and they will walk and not faint. There's something about eagles that inspire me and inspired the prophet Isaiah. Where I run often, Periodically, I see a pair of eagles soaring. And it's a picture of how they lean on the powers of the thermal currents to do something they can never do on their own, their own effort. And it's a picture Isaiah gives us of what is available to you and me in the power of the Spirit as a prince of Jesus in a fallen world. This is the power and strength available to you to wait well. That waiting may be waiting for that child you long to hold. It may be waiting for that prodigal to come home. It may be waiting for that spouse that you long to have, or a marriage breakthrough, or a friendship to be reconciled, or waiting for the restoration of your emotional or physical health. The supernatural strength to wait well, to experience patient endurance in hard times. Jesus promises us will be there for us each and every day as we wait on him. Waiting on him means we cling to his promises. But also notice, waiting on Jesus also means cultivating God's presence in our daily life. Let's remember that Jesus has just told his disciples 
the Holy Spirit will be with them to guide them. When Jesus ascends to heaven, he says to his disciples, I will never leave you or forsake you. In other words, Jesus wants us to remember he's always with us, he's always there for us. We never wait alone. And again, I commend to you Isaiah 41.10 to memorize and hold to your heart. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you because I am your God. I will help you. Surely I will strengthen you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So how do we become more aware of his manifest presence with us? There's so much I could say here, and we spend a lot of time. One of the things I want to commend you, if you haven't, is to engage with the form.life around the disciplines of reading God's word. But one of the main hindrances for many of us in our current context to experience God's comforting and strengthening presence as we wait is that our lives are just too busy and we're too distracted in technology. So may I suggest what God's word calls us to embrace as a weekly Sabbath day in your schedule. Based on your season of life, this Sabbath rhythm will look a bit different. But God designed a weekly Sabbath day for us to delight in him, to enjoy his presence with those we love. And the Sabbath is also one of the best appetizers while we wait for what is to come. How do we wait on Jesus now? We remember God's promises, we cultivate God's presence, and we embrace God's people. Waiting is hard, but we never wait alone. We have a local church family that we wait with. We are called to encourage, love, help each other as we wait. Fascinating as Paul writes to the Corinthians, the Corinthian church, he ends his first letter, we call it today, by two little Greek words. Maratha, Maratha. And translated, he ends his letter to the Corinthians, which means, Lord, come quickly. Come quickly. Following Jesus means we wait. And we cry out, Lord, come. Come quickly. When we gather around the Lord's communion table, We not only remember what Jesus has done for us, but isn't it amazing that the Apostle Paul says that we gather and we wait for the Lord and on the Lord together around his holy communion table. Paul will say we wait in holy communion. We wait together as God's people and we proclaim his death until he comes. So for those who are in Christ this morning, those who have followed Jesus, and if you are not followed Jesus, may you sit in your seat this morning and invite Christ into your life. May you trust him as your Lord and Savior. But anyone who has trusted Jesus is welcome to his communion table. He welcomes you here. Find a communion table near you. Or table near you. Uh, there's a couple of gluten-free, I believe. I think I have that right. So look back there, right? Got that right. Um, and prepare your hearts. Gather in groups and come. And enjoy the Lord's Supper, remembering the Lord's death until he comes. Please come.